Well, good morning. How's your week been? Rochelle and I have had an interesting week. Our fourth child arrived this week. Uh, some of you know that. And thank you for your words and congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> arrived uh, on Tuesday morning. We got to the hospital at 2.35 and Elijah appeared at 2.38. So, what you call right on time delivery. Um, so, thank you for your good wishes and, and uh, prayers and all the rest. Let's stand as we come now to God's Word. Uh, friends, it's Revelation chapter 3. And uh, we're looking at this morning from uh, verse 7 to 13. Let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Lord, we want to ask again, as we have asked uh, several times in this series on uh, uh, the letters to the seven churches of Asia, repeating uh, the words of Jesus. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, Lord, we want to pray that you would give us a listening uh, disposition, uh, an openness to hear uh, what it is that the Spirit is saying to us. We pray that you would grant us the, um, uh, the softness of heart to be receptive. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's hear then God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do please sit down, my friends. Well, I suppose that we are all aware and 
one way or another that uh, pragmatism is the doctrine of the day. Um, Pragmatism, you might say, rules the roost. What is pragmatism? Pragmatism is the doctrine, long since now established, that uh, success is to do what works. And when you put it like that, it seems so obvious nowadays that almost the very statement of that opinion uh, appears tautologous, it's so obvious. But actually, pragmatism was a, a philosophical sto- school originally uh, that had this idea that the test of truth is its practical results. And actually, these days, pragmatism is the underlying assumption of much of our lives and of much of uh, the way we go about our business and society in general, whether we are aware of it or not. And nowhere, it seems to me, is that more so, uh, again, whether we are aware of it or not, than in the realm of of religion, church, and uh, the matters of faith. These days, people want to know that this God character is going to have some good results. They want church to be, above all, practical. And this is all reasonable enough, inevitable enough, it appears to us these days. Uh, But actually, pragmatism is a little more than just this and has, at least can have, more um, negative effects, more insidious effects than this. So pragmatism is not just the belief in such truisms of everyday life, such as if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or you know, just being practical and down to earth. No, pragmatism is a bit more than that. Pragmatism has a tendency, you see, to downgrade all endeavors after truth or beauty to what you might call the lowest common denominator, even the bottom line. Pragmatism tends to suggest that if it is not quantifiable, it is not true, or at least not worthy of being considered for long. And so, for instance, it is pure pragmatism to question the validity of art, you know, and art galleries, after all. Are such things really producing any results, any practical results? But then again, it's pure pragmatism to defend the validity of art and art galleries solely on the basis of how many people attended last year, you see. Because such statistics are quantifiable, practical, pragmatic in its pure sense. Well, again, it's, it's pure pragmatism to question the value of intellectual achievements in their purest sense. And so universities and professors then become, well, just sort of training programs for producing a more effective economy. And if classes and schools cannot match this criterion, then they are appropriately questioned by this all-pervasive, pragmatic spirit. Now, the trouble with such things is that while obviously and clearly, and you know, I both know this, that having good results is a test of truth, uh, it is, though, not the only test of truth or worth. And what's more, it can be uh, the most elusive, uh, the results test. It can be the most elusive 
test of truth, the most difficult to pin down and rightly um, consider as a test of truth and value. So again, for instance, the good results of teaching someone about higher mathematics or the beauty of a painting, they're not readily quantifiable, but they are nonetheless there. Actually, many of the greatest, and let it be said, practical, technological advances of the last 50 years, the kind of things that we touch every day when we open up our iPhone, Many of those things have come about in the last 50 years or so as a result of research into pure theoretical mathematics and research of that kind that was funded not for a pragmatic reason but out of a more principled commitment to the advance of human knowledge and that sort of thing. So in other words, one cannot always tell what is going to have the best result. And if the best result, most practical result, is the only and the dominant guiding criterion, then much that will actually, if left to its own, produce good results, may be nipped in the bud or cut short or fall by the wayside. What room is there for beauty, truth, love, and the higher virtues in a purely pragmatic universe? No, uh, unmitigated, uh, untrammeled, unvarnished pragmatism is the strip mall of truth. (laughs) And so it is interesting to note, isn't it, that the Church of Philadelphia, the church we're considering uh, this morning, the Church of Philadelphia, one of the two churches, you know, in these seven letters of Revelation that receives praise without criticism from the lips of of the Lord Jesus. This church is a church, pragmatically speaking, that has, verse 8, little power. Yet it is commended. It's a model of a healthy church. Unlike Smyrna, the other church that receives pure praise from Jesus in these letters, unlike Smyrna, Philadelphia is not only excellent in its current faithfulness, it has excellent possibilities for future usefulness as well. It is, in fact, a church with enormous pragmatic opportunities. It's not tone deaf to those results, of course. You and I know they are important. Uh, And so Jesus says, it has an open door, you see, enormous opportunities. And yet none of this comes from a pragmatic commitment, but rather from a principled commitment to, again, verse 8, the Word. It it is this that they have held on to or kept, uh, which is emphasized in verse 10. It is because you have kept my word about patient Endurance. It is this word of Jesus, the word of God, that is the controlling principle that leads to the excellence which defines the Philadelphian church. So, so what I think, my friends, this passage is teaching us, and see what you think as we now get into these verses together. What I think this passage is teaching us is this, that an excellent church is a church that holds on to or keeps the Word. It is a Word 
driven church. And I think it shows us this in three ways. First, it tells us this is what honors Jesus. Second, it tells us this is what creates opportunities. And third, it tells us this is what works. (laughs) Actually, that's what works. So first then, an excellent church is a word-driven church for this is what honors Jesus. And in this passage here, keeping God's word is always connected to what honors Jesus. So in verse 8, and it shows us this in various ways, look at verse 8, keeping the word is connected to having not denied Jesus' name, therefore it honors Jesus. So it says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So the name of Jesus is his character, his reputation, his, his honor. And they have kept his word and have not denied his name. And because they have done this, Jesus himself, so honored, will bring others to acknowledge that he has loved them. Verse 9, they will bow down at your feet and will learn that I have loved you. Since, this verse 10, they have kept the word of his endurance, he will also keep them from the hour of trial. And we'll think what that means in a moment. And then verse 12 So reputable of Jesus are they that it is on them that Jesus will write his name, the name of the city of God and the name of God. So the word is what exalts the Lord Jesus. His name and his love is connected to the church that holds on to the word. Now, I find, and I I, I suppose many of us do, that it's easy to think of the Word as something intellectual, you see. But for Jesus, it is personal. It is His Word. It is, in fact, the Word of His endurance. Now, that phrase may indicate a specific command in Scripture to endure patiently and the like, but much more um, likely, in my view, it indicates the personal suffering that the message of Christ involves. It is the Word of His endurance or of His suffering. It is the Word of Christ, the, the suffering servant, the crucified one, you see. And they've held on to that and not rejected the cross of Jesus that the word of Jesus speaks about and points to. It's so often true that those who begin to sideline the word in church soon enough downplay the cross. And before long, even, I'm afraid, will deny the name, for they are connected It is the word of Jesus that witnesses to the exclusive lordship of Jesus, you see. His being the only way of being saved. His cross, his sufferings. If there could be many, many other ways, why would God in Christ go to all that trouble? You see. And so if we begin to have a low view of Scripture... Soon enough, what happens? We begin to have a low view of Christ. They are connected. But if we hold on to the word, we honor Jesus. Why? It is his word. He gave his blood for it. It is personal, not just intellectual. 
The other thing I think that we tend, uh, when it comes to the Word of God, is we tend to think of the Word as something dry and objective, uh, like a sort of lecture or something like that, and removed from the exuberance and the excitement of the heart of worship. But in fact, the Word honors Jesus. It exalts Him. It shows His love and His name. So it's a personal word, a word of love, and hence it's a word of honor for Jesus. And perhaps you've heard it said that the Bible is God's love letter to us. But here we're learning it is also, in a way, Jesus' personal name. I suppose uh, if you pick up your Bible, you might uh, think that uh, on the flyleaf or on the front cover or something is written the name J-E-S-U-S. It is that personal, His word. Oh, but Bible study is so boring. It's so dry. An expositional ministry, such as we're doing this morning, taking a text and explaining it and applying it, expositional ministry is so passe. It's so old-fashioned. What we need are technological pyrotechnics. That will bring them in. What we need is more entertainment. And why do we need to explain the Bible? We all know what it says anyway. We need the Spirit. We need surveys. We need results. The last thing in the world we need is the Bible. Let's keep it on the shelf, for sure. Let's have it on the podium as some kind of symbol, vaguely. And, and then let's have brief motivational messages about life, which occasionally refer to a bit in the Bible. And then we can excite everyone and sort of connect God to the excitement somehow. That'll work. Well, actually, it won't work as we will see. But neither would it honor Jesus. It cost him his life, this word. Keeping to it may cost us something. Uh, Franklin Graham, uh, a little while ago, wrote a book called The Name, in which he described how he was pilloried and criticized and uh, attacked for praying in the name of the Lord Jesus at the inauguration of a president. Now, there is something deeply offensive in the exclusive claims to worship of the Lord Jesus that you find in the Bible. And so sticking to what the Bible says about Jesus may cost us patient endurance to a cross too, as it cost Jesus the cross. But if we honor Jesus, if we love Jesus, as I know many of us do here this morning, we will keep the Word at the heart of our churches and our ministries and our lives. Why? For it is a defining test of our relationship to Jesus. Look at it like this. You you could not say that you respect me and then twist my Word for your ends, could you? But neither can you say that you honor Jesus and then not let His Word set the direction of your life. 
Well, first then, friends, uh, word-driven because it honors Jesus. Second, word-driven because it creates opportunities. So then look with me at verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Or then look also at verse 8. He says there, I set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, what is this open door, this sort of opportunity? What is it here? Uh, This open door has been given various interpretations by different people over the years. Uh, Some scholars say it's an open door of prayer. Others have said it's an open door of missionary expansion. Others still have said it's an open door of access to God through Christ and open door of salvation. Others, again, have thought that it's an open door to entrance to the kingdom when Jesus returns. And I think it's all of those. So let me explain. The the phrase open door seems to me to be deliberately open to various of these possible uses. So a little later in this chapter, what does it mean? Look at verse 20. It means being willing to repent. Very famous words here, verse 20. Behold, and we'll look at them subsequently another Sunday. But behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Or look at the beginning of chapter 4. There the phrase means the extraordinary access that John is given to the very throne room of heaven. So there it says, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. You see? But then elsewhere in the Bible, the Apostle Paul characteristically uses the same phrase of of missionary opportunities. And so he asked the Colossian church to pray that a door would be opened for his ministry, for his preaching and evangelism. And then he gave thanks for an open door to the Corinthian church. And actually that meaning, that sort of missionary expansion meaning, is how the phrase is used in the book of Acts uh, more generally as well. Now, the point then, it seems to me here in Philadelphia, is that the messianic, uh, messianic connected to the Messiah, to the Christ, the messianic fruition, the fruit, the messianic fruition was in the hands of the church and no other religious institution. So Christ holds the key of David. It's a reference uh, to, perhaps you know, the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 22. He can open the door. He has opened the door for the church. See, And then uh, if you look at verse 9, those who think they have understood the message of the Old Testament, which some of this uh, phraseology refers to, those who think they've understood it, who claim to be the inheritors of the promise of Abraham, but have not combined that with faith in Jesus and his word, will come to realize the genuineness of the Christian church and worship with them the Lord Jesus. So he says, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, incidentally, it's worth uh, remarking here, I think, in case a misunderstanding takes root in any of our minds, if we are ever tempted to think that the Bible is anti-Semitic, 
and with such phrases like this as you occasionally come across. All you need to remember is that the people writing uh, this were ethnically Jews, you see, right? Jesus was a Jew. So the point is not ethnic. It is spiritual. It is religious, if you like. Who has real access to God? Who has the power of the keys of the kingdom? It was talked about in Isaiah. Who is engaging in true worship of God? It's the Christian church. Multi-ethnic. All nations. It's the Christian church. Jew and Gentile. Multi-ethnic through the gift of Jesus. So, the open door here then, what is that? Well, this opportunity, it can mean anything that characterizes what we might say about uh, someone being on the inside track with God, if you'd like. It could mean freedom in prayer. It could mean access to God. It could mean salvation, but, and, and all of those things, I think. But most particularly, though, it's explained here, it seems to me, in verse 9, to mean evangelistic success. So they will bow down. That is the word used for worship. They will become worshipers of Jesus as well. They will join them in the worship and together enjoy the fruits of the messianic kingdom of the Lord Jesus who has the key of David and through whom Heaven itself is an open door. So then, uh, friends, we're driven because it honors Jesus. We're driven because it creates opportunities. And third, because it works when you start with that principle. So look at uh, verse 10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Uh, verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own New name. Well, these are wonderful, high-sounding rhetorical verses and phrases, and yet, in terms of their meaning, they initially appear to many people to be nearly impenetrable. Uh, it's very hard to figure out what they're actually saying. But I think they are well illustrated by an insight into the scene of the city of Philadelphia itself. So like Sardis, uh, Philadelphia had been devastated in the catastrophic earthquake of A.D. 17. Sardis was initially worst hit, but Philadelphia, being uh, nearer to the epicenter of the quake, suffered aftershocks, it seems, for years afterwards. In fact, the residents of the city actually took to living outside of the city in the open plain in order to avoid the danger of constantly, unpredictably falling debris. 
Philadelphia was a city also famous for its religious and athletic festivals such that it was known as Little Athens. It was also well known for its wine. Right on the edge of the volcanic material of the area and volcanic rock being good for growing vines, it established wealth through its wine trade. It was also a gateway city. It had two important trade routes running through it and had initially probably been established as a sort of missionary city of Greek culture and language, hence Philadelphia. Now, all these diverse local conditions are are somewhat important for understanding what's going on here. For in AD 92, the Roman emperor enacted what was a diabolical command whereby one-third of the vines of the local area, uh, we are told, were devastated, perhaps to encourage the growing of wheat instead of vines uh, because of the need for food at the time. This came near to destroying the economy of Philadelphia, though. For it, while being a perfect region for growing vines, had terrible soil uh, for wheat. Now, we don't know for sure, of course, but the hour of trial then in verse 10, written specifically here in the letter to Philadelphia, may refer to this. It is certainly a peculiar expression. Normally in the New Testament, the article the is not used before this word for trial. So literally it is the hour of the trial. It seems to be something specific in mind and something that went over the whole of the world. Again, the phrase uh, there was used to indicate the inhabited earth as distinct from the non-Roman world. The Romans were picky about what the world really was. It was their world, not anyone else's, you see. So it was an issue for the empire. It's possible then, and again, we don't know, and I don't know for sure, but it's possible then that this hour of trial is the hour of the trial that unwittingly released on the Roman world. And it was particularly barbaric for no one then, not even conquering armies, destroyed vines or olive trees, for they took so long to grow to maturity And their destruction could mean starvation for the people. The crown, verse 11, well, that's the well-known athletic wreath, isn't it, that was given to the victor in athletic conquests, especially perhaps appropriate for little Athens. And the promise, never shall he go out of it, may have been especially heartwarming for a people who had to flee an earthquake-devastated city time and time again in recent uh, past. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is that this spiritual, principled commitment to the Word works in practice. They have held on to the Word. And he is going to hold on to them, come hell or high water or judgment or famine. It works now, verse 10. During the famine, they will be held on to and protected. 
Not taken out of the situation like Jesus prayed for his disciples, that God would not take them out of the world, but that they would be protected from the evil one. Not taken out of the situation, but kept from the specific hour of trial about to arrive. It works for the future too, uh, verse 11 and 12. I am coming soon. Soon, Jesus is coming uh, quickly in the sense of imminently, not necessarily speedily, coming soon. This is referring to Jesus' second coming. Hold fast to what they have. What do they have? What are they holding on to? The Word. Hold fast to that so they do not lose their crown, the crown of victory and this testing conquest for their souls. And he who does hold on to the word, he who does conquer, will be made a a, a pillar. That is secure, stable, not shaken anymore like they experience those aftershocks. Never again will he leave it. He will have the name of God, of the city of God, and of Jesus himself invested in him. That is, those who have kept Jesus' word and therefore honored Jesus' name will be privileged to have that name, that honor, that commitment relayed to them for eternity in the city of God. The writing of the name is an Old Testament image picked up in various ways here indicating ownership. Like we write our name on something to say it is ours. So Jesus is saying that because of our commitment to him and his word and his name, he is committed to us now and for all eternity. He is, if you like, signing his name on us. Mine. It's a wonderful passage. The excellent church holds on to the word for this honors Jesus. It creates opportunities and it works. Even in the very practicalities of economic challenge and eternal destiny. Strangely enough, however... In a few short years after this was written, the excellent church of Philadelphia was struggling. Uh, Ignatius, passing through on his way to martyrdom to Rome, noted that the influx of new converts from Judaism had created a tendency to despise the New Testament word, the apostolic word, the word of Jesus, that had been their great achievement. And a little later still, A sect called the Montanists rose up to shake the Christian world with their claim to a new word. A prophetic inspiration which led to the denial of the word of Jesus. And strangely enough, it seems pretty clear that it was Philadelphia that was the birthplace of these Montanists. How could this be? 
Well, we may be able to see the seeds of the trouble even here. The Montanists claim that the promise of the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus would be fulfilled right now on earth and claim that the city of God had descended from heaven. The Judaizers sought God speaking only in the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures, and both forgot to hold on to the Word. Which is why verse 11 is so apropos. Hold fast what you have. Do not give way to a supercharged spirituality that claims to overwrite the once raw faith delivered to the saints. Do not give way to a legalistic moralism that denies the saving word of Jesus in favor of the law. Instead, hold on to the word. Well, let's pray together. Lord, there are many practical challenges that each of us uh, faces on a daily basis. For some of us, it is paying the bills. There is a mortgage that has to be paid every month, and every month it is very close to whether we can or not. Lord, uh, for some of us, uh, it's not really financial, it's relational. There, are, uh, there is an important relationship that is fractured. We did something or said something that we regret and we wish we could take it back and go back in time and live differently but we cannot Lord for others uh, still it's um, something internal emotional or mental even our temperament troubles us we find it hard to live in a way that has an even keel. We often feel down. And uh, it's a challenge for us to rise to the challenges of practical living because of the way we feel. Rather still, the, the daily practical challenges are, are none of those things. They're just simply physical. Our bodies hurt. There's a shelf packed with pills. And we have to remember which one to take when. And just getting out of bed in the morning to get to church is a is a challenge. 
Lord, we have these and, and, and no doubt other practical matters that we face all the time. And Lord, we go to many places to find solutions to these things. We, we go to um, TV programs, we read books, we go to web pages. We might even talk to our friends. Lord, help us to go to the Word. To believe that your Bible is what we need. To hold on to that. To hold fast to that. We pray that we would do so to the honor of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.